Hello fellow adventurers, I'm Josie Thompson and welcome to the You Can Shine podcast where I explore real stories of real people just like you and I who have faced adversities, trials and won. Today I'm here with Andrew Bills. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. I met Andrew over 20 years ago through a mutual friend and we both had very young children at the time and I recall a few evenings where we were all gathered around the pianola singing together. Do you remember that, Andrew? Oh, I do well. And my voice was probably the one that was most out of tune. So. Well, let's hope it's improved, eh? <laughs> Andrew Bills is the CEO of CS Energy and he has over 20 years experience in the energy and infrastructure industry. He's held senior executive roles at Origin and Stanwell. Andrew has served as a director on multiple boards, including chairman of Gas Energy Australia and an industry representative on the advisory council to the Energy and Water Ombudsman Queensland. He's currently a director on the board of the Australian Energy Council. Andrew Bills is partner to Gilly and father to Georgia and Emma. He's also a bit of an exercise nut. He loves wine, he loves travel and live music. And along with his CEO staff update each week, he shares a song of the week, which he says personalizes him as a leader. Welcome, Andrew Bills. Thanks, Josie, good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. I've done a bit of a rundown, Andrew, of some of the career highlights of your life. Tell us the story underneath, who is Andrew Bills and what are some of the formative experiences that have shaped your life? Sure. Um, look, I, uh, hopefully my accent doesn't give it away, but I grew up in New Zealand, South Island in New Zealand, a little town called Timaru um, in the country. And it was a pretty, you know, simple lifestyle. Um, I went off to boarding school at the age of 10, which was actually quite confronting at first, but it actually gave me a lot of life skills and learning and independence. Um, but probably the biggest thing that had the most profound impact on my life, um, which should have at the time didn't feel like it was my father died when I was 12 and mum had to go back or she was a teacher, had to go back to teaching and raise three kids. Um, so we didn't have a lot, but we had a good life. I mean, I, we, we, you know, it was nothing we didn't go without, but it wasn't a great, you know, it was just what it was at the time. Um, and interestingly, it, I didn't realize at the time that not having a male father figure really influenced my perceptions and my ability to relate to people. So I like, what do I mean by that? Um, I've always had no issue relating to women in positions of power, authority or leadership. And I'll never forget going to university and my undergraduate degree and looking at all the lecturers and 90% of them were male. I'm like going, what's going wrong here? This is this, you know, cause my mother teacher, you know, role, my only, you know, parent. And therefore I had this really interesting perception. Um, and so that later in life, uh, and at the time I didn't realize, but I had difficulty just building relations, relationships with men in positions of power and authority and what have you. And I didn't have that father figure. So obviously I worked through that, but it was in my, in those twenties, it was such an influence and in just around how I related to people. Um, I left New Zealand on a one way ticket when I was 21, uh, like a lot of Kiwis at the time and just traveled the world, lived in the States, you know, hitchhiked across Canada, do all those crazy things. 
Um, so this gave me my love of travel started at a young age. And then I, I ended up in the UK and that's where I worked for a year or two. And that's where I met Jill and she from Gundawindi. And so she dragged me to <laughs> Brisbane and I've been here ever since. So my life is in Queensland courtesy of bumping into Jill in, in London, like so many Aussies and Kiwis do, right? It's just mm. like, that was a thing. Um, and so then I've, you know, since then I've just progressed a career through predominantly the energy industry um, and, uh, you know, infrastructure and both consulting and, you know, working, running businesses as well. Um, and sort of at this point now where you sit back and you're looking at, well, I didn't expect to be where I am today, sitting in Brisbane, talking to you, you know, where I was in a small town, New Zealand many years ago. Mm. So that's, that's a little about, you know, why, how I've ended up in Brisbane and my story. So, so far, it sounds like a fairly cruisy life. You know, you kind of grew up, I mean, dad passing would have been a major shock to you. Yeah. Um, and, and there would have been, like, at that age of 12, like, how did you even make sense of that? Yeah, like, at the time, it was a tremendous sense of loss. Um, and uh, I was at boarding school. And it was just, I mean, you hear these stories, and I'd, you know, because two policemen came to the door to tell us because dad was on business and um, I've still got this image, you know, absolutely etched in my mind to tell that dad had died of a heart attack in, um, in Wellington on business. And so I just remember that morning, you know, the, the, the policemen and all that sort of stuff. And you, you read stories today about similar people going through the same things and those images are, are with them for life. Um, probably the thing that it did give me was because of his heart disease, I became obsessed with my own health. And um, whilst it was that sense of loss, as I got older, I really, really looked after myself because I figured, well, I've got DNA, if the DNA is, is what it is, I've got to do what I can to improve my odds. So I've always been really focused on my lifestyle. And I know it's about recognizing that I've got a higher probability of a heart attack given his his father so my grandfather died of a heart attack his brother died of a heart attack so I was really badly through those genes mm. and I became very obsessed about that and as a result I always would look you know go to a doctor every year for a checkup uh, and I've always had a baseline of data about my health whether it's cholesterol blood pressure or whatever and a whole lot of other things that were being done at the same time and mm. that's and that set me up I think for a um, I think a, a much better way to handle it than if I just sort of ignored all of that and ploughed on. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's a very responsible and proactive approach. It is, but it saved my life. <laughs> so um, you know, this this is this is the un, unforeseen thing and the perverse thing about you lose a father so young, and then later in life when you get older because of that that history and that approach you've actually got information and data that you've gives yourself options and choices when when things happen later in life so as a result i would never have been in the position i am without having had that experience i didn't realize it at the time but it's 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 one of those things that's just emerged for me in the last few years hmm. so you've been blessed with good health and mm. fitness for quite a long time and then what happened yes so um i got diagnosed with prostate cancer last year um completely out of the blue so you know it's his some you know someone who's 
always looking after their health and everything and then bang no history of prostate cancer in the family on any either side at the age of 52 years old so at the low end and then you get diagnosed with prostate cancer and you know you go through that and anyone who's been through cancer knows those words when they come out and sort of the oh god it's me and then you go through this whole process of diagnosis to confirm that it is what it is and i and the thing is because i uh, and this is this is really you know one of those way things the world works when i took the job at cs energy in the first week someone came up to me and said would you support a corporate health program and i said absolutely i firmly believe in these because it'll help save someone's life and I, i'm you know good my own experience and this was before your diagnosis before my diagnosis so this okay. is 2018 and so then we went through did the corporate health checks um and i was really keen to get everyone involved in in that um and then through that diagnosis um this i had my psa test and the woman just looked at it and went look it's low it's it's within the threshold for your age group but you've got a history with your doctor haven't you because you've been doing this every year hence what i was saying earlier go and get this checked because I'm just not sure the, you know, the free PSA may not be where it should be. Courtesy of her suggesting that, even though I'd been to my own doctor six months earlier, in that period, that intervening period, that cancer had emerged because my doctor then confirmed the diagnosis that I had cancer and then went through the whole process and it was actually an intermediate cancer. So if I'd left it, uh, it would have got out of the prostate and it would have got into my so, sister lymph nodes etc so the whole diagnosis would have been quite different so andrew was this part of a regular yearly thing that you were doing anyway yeah so that's what i was talking about earlier Josie. i because of my sort of this is the perverse thing of a couple of things connecting one my obsession with my health courtesy of my my formative experience losing my dad to a heart disease sure. now i think the heart attack probably killed him before prostate did so he was 56 uh when he died of a heart attack um, and I think he probably would have had or developed prostate cancer at some time uh, after that, based on what I know today. Um, so, but because I was obsessed and I was going on getting those battery of tests, the PSA was being checked every year. So there was a baseline. So when I went back to my doctor and he went, oh, that's more than 10%. So that's under your threshold for your age, but that incremental increase. So that early diagnosis saved my life. Mm. because if I, it was, it was an intermediate, potentially aggressive cancer. It would have got out into my lymph nodes. It would have been a different form of treatment. I just had a prostatectomy, which is still major surgery, but it would have been a whole different form of treatment and who knows what would have happened. Right. So that's why I look at it. Here's the weird sort of outcome. Losing your father is what I said early on, saved my life later on. I, I would never have realized it because it changed my attitude about my health. Mm. And I did something about it. Um, so rather than being fearful of something happening, you kind of got on the front foot and said, right, I'm going to lead a healthy life and lifestyle. And my commitment to that is having these yearly checks. And as a consequence of those practices, you were able to actually get onto this quite early. Absolutely. Abs mm. And that was a choice. And there were other choices I made too, like, you know, dad would come home and he, he, he at the time I didn't realize, but he suffered anxiety, right? And he would come home and he wouldn't even see us kids. He'd sit in the kitchen and have a glass of sherry as you did back then uh, and talk to mum and try and 
decompress the day, right? It'd bring all the stress home and just ridiculous little things about conversations and relationships and things. I vaguely remember it. Mm. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bring that into the home. I'm that, that as soon as I get out of the office and I, whether I'm getting on the bus or the train or the car or whatever, that stays back in the office and I'll process that and being very clear on a line between what came into the home and not. Um, perversely, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, what, how's Andrew going? Jill goes, he doesn't ever talks about work. Um, so perhaps I've got, gone too far the right way. But that was one of the other conscious choices I made. And that is I'm not bringing that into the home, regardless of the role that I have. Mm. Uh, because I saw the impact it had, uh, not only on him, but, you know, mum and everyone else at the time. Mm. So let's go to your prognosis. So you, you retrieved this unusual reading mm -hmm. and you had that further investigated and then it was confirmed by your GP that yep. it was of concern. What was going on in your mind and how the hell did you get through that? Um, you, first of all, you go to, obviously, why me, right? You, you, you ask that question of yourself. But I quickly, I remember sitting there. I remember sitting there after the biopsy. And I was sitting there and contextually, it was a shocking day. It was a shocking month for us because Jill's mother had died that month through cancer, right? Uh, secondary cancers, breast cancer. And the day of the funeral, I go, I leave the wake, which is at our house, go to the surgeon who confirms the biopsy results, which is, yep, this is the Gleason score. It's at four and a three. You have to have your prostate out. And I'm sitting there going, okay. And I quickly moved from um, why me to, right, what, when can we do it? What suits you? How many, you know, like I got into what time of the day I want to be first up. Um, you know, bang, I got into just breaking it down into task and solution mode. Um, that, that, that was that was just the logistical part of it, right? But what I did then was I rang a mate of mine, one of my best mates from New Zealand, and he, he got prostate cancer at about 44, 45. And he's, he survived, but he's had an incredible experience where he's got all, all his organs out. I mean, he's on a bag and everything and just incredible. And he's still so positive. He's teaching. He was still exercising like you wouldn't believe. He actually represented New Zealand in triathlons. He's that sort of guy. Um, he said to me, and I rang him up and told him about my diagnosis and we had a big, big chat. This is, you know, before I've gone into the hospital for the surgery. And he said, he said, Andrew, there's two things, um, two bits of advice I'm going to give you. He says, you need to talk about this. You need to talk about it for yourself, for your mental health. And number two, you need to talk about it to help others because that will help you. And very simple, powerful succinct bit of advice and I went okay great thank you and reflected on that and when I was I remember sitting lying in bed after the surgery and I'm talking to my prostate nurse at the Wesley and I'm sitting there I'm going so where do I fit in the scheme of things out of all the guys you've seen she goes well you're, you're number 4,900 and something I'm like god that's just one hospital one nurse you think about how many men have prostate cancer that was like a a bit of a reality check. And then she said, you're at the young end. You're at the young end, but the biggest increase is in your age group. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. What, 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 why? We don't know. Um, and, I, and, I, and I was sitting there reflecting and I suddenly realized, I said, said, to her, I said, look, I'm in a position where I can reach a lot of people. 
would you be interested in coming and talking about this at a later date? She said, absolutely, no problem at all. And I started to form then in my own mind, I thought, listening to Rodney's advice, my mate, mm. I thought, I can do a lot of good with this. I can actually, that ex- when she told me about the increase in my age group, that 45 to 55 age group, where people think you're not at risk, that's the biggest increase in Australia. And then I realized, you know, Rodney's advice to go and talk about it. And she then says, yes, that would help because it's the awareness thing. So men do what you've done because if, without that baseline, this is the scary thing, Josie, without that baseline, if I'd gone in off the street without one prior check, they would have sent me away because my PSA was below the threshold. Yeah, it's elevated, but it's not, nothing to be worried about. Mm. So you think about that and you go, wow. So just getting men to go in, like women are so much better at doing regular checks. Mm. Men, men aren't in the same category. So I sort of then took that, you know, said, right, I'm, gonna, I'm going to absolutely reach out and do what I can to sh- spread the awareness and understanding. So I got her to go come into work. And it was about, we got about 100 people turning up. It was just, this is the first of these. And um, she was great. She just brought this thing that you've how, how a prostate feels so oh, uh, yeah yeah so here's a normal prostate so this is the whole stigma of you know the finger um you know here's a normal prostate here's an enlarged one and it was being passed around the room and it was just fun. it was a leveler it was brilliant it was a leveler and anyway and then she said to me after she said how are you and i said look I'm, I'm really good you know i've just been talking about it ad infinitum and she goes and this is this, this absolute classic quote she goes you've talked all the darkness out of you so it can't take you down. And that's exactly what Rodney was telling me, which is you've got to talk about this for your mental health. And I remember, I remember at the time when the fog left in that general anesthetic around about six weeks. And if anyone's had a general a major general anesthetic, um, you know that what I'm talking about. And I remember this feeling of, I could have easily flipped into victim mode because yeah, sort of the clarity is lifted and you're dealing with the complications of, your, of losing a prostate. And I'm not afraid to talk about it. You know, obviously you've got major issues with bladder control and you've got to teach yourself how to deal with that, right? So you've got to do all, there's phenomenal services to help you with that in terms of physio and you build up your pelvic floor. But I do remember at that time, because I'm working that through going, yeah, I could easily go, why me? And go into this, you know, despair, victim. sort of spiral, victim mm. mode. And I thought, no, mm. no, 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 no. And I very consciously, I just, and I just talked about it. I talked about it with everyone just constantly. And, and it was just this awareness thing. And it did that two things. It just prompted, I think I prompted God knows how many people to go and get their, their check. But then it just, as, as, my nurse had said to me, I just talked all of that darkness out and I was dealing with it and I was just progressively working through my rehabilitation. Mm. And as a result, you just, it was not something to feel down about. It was, I had, I had the opposite. I had the feeling of how lucky am I? I got onto this early. I did something proactively about it. I'm now in rehabilitation. I've got no secondaries. I've got no sort of long-term effects impacting me in my lifestyle. I'm back to full exercise. And I'm going, I'm really lucky. And that's how, and that's the attitude I took with me because then I can, and then, and as a result, I've then I've now taken that more broadly and take, you know, in terms of looking into supporting other, you know, cancer research, prostate cancer research, but it was a choice and absolutely deliberate choice. 
So Andrew, I really want you to, like that, that's an incredible story because having faced cancer myself, um, I remember when the doctor said to me, yes, it's malignant stage three. And I looked at him and my mind could make sense of it, but there was a part of me that was completely numb and mm. it just felt surreal. Like, was this really happening to me? And just like you, within a minute, the words fell out of my mouth to say, well, if you don't do this second surgery first thing in the morning, I'm never going to let you touch me again. So I knew I didn't need time to think about it. And so I'm, I really want to just check in, like how you did the flip from fear to courage. Like how did you turn it around? What did that inner narrative become to enable you to be able to step into it and through it instead of fearing it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, through my life, I've, I've always, I've, I've developed, I think, quite a resilient approach to circumstances that I've been faced with. And, um, and part of that, I'll just go off a little tangent. When, you know, when I was traveling by myself, I felt I could go to any country, anywhere in the world and, and make do, right? I could absolutely find a job, do something, and I just felt completely indestructible. And some of the circumstances I went through were pretty harrowing, right? And, and I just built on that. And, and in the work context, I mean, I've been in positions where really, really difficult circumstances. Uh, but I've always felt that if you break it down, you can and, and stand back, you can actually work a path. I always felt I could work a path. I can find a way through. And I, and I guess that's sort of the essence of how I approach life, which is I can find a way through. I'll break it down. I'll take it a step at a time. And I think my own experience about how I reacted and I, I totally, the way you describe it when you, it washes over you and you're just going and you're processing it. And then, <laughs> and then you, but the thing is, if you focus on the big thing, right, that, that it is, that's just come out of the, the, the doctor's mouth, then you're not going to move past that. You're going to stay in that space. Whereas you go from that, go, okay, right, let's, let's get down. What's the next step? focus on that and it's all about step at a time step at a time step at a time and then you get your path right but if you just stay in the space of i've been diagnosed with cancer like in your case malignant stage three you know you can stay just talking about that or you can actually go right what's the next step to sort this mm. and then have this un un you know sort of un unswerving belief in yourself to get mm. through this yeah. um and I, you know you'd, you'd be familiar with the stockdale paradox which is it, so Stockdale, he was this US airman and, and um, imprisoned in uh, Hanoi uh, with, the U, uh, with the US in the Vietnam War. And he was this incredible guy who um, basically they said, well, how did you survive? And he said, well, the optimists never survive because they'd say things like, um, you know, we're going to get out by Christmas. But there was no fact surrounding that. It was just, a, it was just like an ambition, right? He said, what you've got to do is confront the brutal facts, but not give up on your belief in yourself to get through, right? So this is the Stockdale paradox, which is the facts are, in his case, you know, he was in Hanoi, you know, in that, that horrendous jail if you've ever been there. Um, and, but he believed in himself and those around him. And it was like they would then get very small steps about them taking control of their situation within the jail, little tiny things that gave them belief, right? 
and it's about in that situation it was all around who had power mm. but in my in my situation in your situation it was around okay so break it down it's not just be ambitious about i'm going to get through this no what is the next step mm. and then and then work it through so i guess that's kind of how i approached it mm. to get through that that initial reaction. So, so Andrew, do you think that the, the greatest challenge or getting through all of that, was it actually physical or was it something else? Oh, there's no doubt it's physical. It's major surgery, right? Um, you know, you're out for four hours and even though I, I had the robotic surgery, which is, you know, phenomenal, um, you know, you've still got the long-term complications of, um, you know, the, as I said, bladder control, the sexual performance and all of those things that come with that and the stigma around that. But there's a, there's a lot there that you can, and it, everyone's different. There's not one size fits all that I've learned. Right. Mm. So it all, you know, in some people it takes years and I've, it's less to get through that. So there are physical aspects to it. What served me well. And he, my surgeon told me this right up front was I was very fit and I was very healthy at the start. Mm. So I actually had a bit of a head start from a lot of other men my age. Mm. Um, so, that, and, but you still had to get through that. But the mental aspect of not letting yourself, those little complications that happen, you know, like you'd be standing and, you know, I'm just going to say it as it is, right? You say you'd be standing at a function, this is a few months after it, and I'm just, you know, you're drinking mineral water or whatever, I'm not drinking alcohol, and you're standing for too long and it's the end of the day and you're like, oh, I need, you know, I'm having, I'm having problems controlling. And then that, that a lot of men will, will know this is circumstance. And women who have had children, most women know this as well. Mm. So there are physical, and so I was quite happy to sort of just confront that and deal with it. But, you know, it just takes time. Mm. But that could then lead you to the mental aspects because there's a relationship there, which is, oh, God, you know, I want my life back that I had beforehand. Well, you're not going to get that. Mm. So let's just confront with where you're at mm. and deal with it. And if you do your physio every day, you'll build up your pelvic floor and therefore you, that is in your control and you'll actually be able to do that. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. And so you just take those conscious choices, right? Mm. So, but you've got to have that, like it, that underlying belief that you can do this no matter how difficult the circumstances are, find a path and just keep believing in yourself to get through it. And and then not all cases, you know, sometimes when people get diagnoses which are worse than mine, they probably don't have the choices I had. Mm. But let's not remember, forget, I gave myself choices from day one because I already made a choice prior to that because mm. of that every year doing a baseline. Mm. So men who go in at 57 years old have never had a test and have a PSA of 20 probably don't have a lot of choices. Yeah. And I heard a story of that when I went and saw my surgeon a few months ago. Mm. So... You, you know, you do, you do make your own luck, if yeah. you want to call it, if you use that, but that's kind of my philosophy. Mm. So, Andrew, question around the belief. There must have been days when you felt you had nothing in the tank. There oh, must have uh, been days where you just went, oh, this is fucked. You know, <laughs> how am I going to get through this next step? I mean, how did you pull up? You know, what were some of the practical things that you did to help yourself? Um. Yeah, I do remember those days. Um, look, I'd step back and go for a walk. Mm -hmm. Just clear your head, go for a walk. For me, music's a big part of my life. Go and listen to something, take yourself away from the moment and use whatever it is. If it's yoga, whatever, mm -hmm. go for a walk, clear your head and then talk about it. 
talk about it with your partner, talk about it with a friend, talk about how you're feeling and express mm-hmm. those feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you let those feelings stay with, you know, like they, they will drag you down, right? So get it out, talk mm-hmm. about it. And, uh, and then you'll be able to, you know, find yourself pull, pulling back from that situation. Um, you know, like I remember New Year's Eve that year, it was a, just, it was on a boat standing for six hours. And you can imagine how I felt at the end of that. That was just hopeless. Uh, and I'm like going, that was the worst New Year's Eve I've had. That's a small thing, but you know, like you just, you've, I, I, I mean, I think, I think the key thing is, is that when you get, when you get into those dark spaces and, and it's easy for me because I've got this ability and I've always had this desire to communicate and talk to people about it. But those mm. people that don't have that, mm. that's hard. And I think that's where we all have a role to check in. And if we've got friends in that space, we've got to create the opportunity for them to step into it with you. So that's kind of where I also go. And I've spoken to a lot of other men after I had my diagnosis and surgery. And I just, you just, because you know this, you're walking into taboo subjects, right? And you go, so how's it going? You know, and just let them walk in, step into it. And then you just mention a couple of things and then they go, oh, you know, I've had, oh, geez, did it happen to you too? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's talk about it. But you've got to, and that's why I, you know, I think my experiences help enable me not only to help others, but in doing so helping myself because you mm. kind of feel supported when you do that. Mm. And that it's that vulnerability is the space that we often want to shy away from, but it's also where we most connect with each other. Right. Absolutely. And I think if, if people don't have um, friends and family or trusted ones to talk to, you know, I found that journaling can also be a way of getting out everything that's racing around inside of your mind onto paper. And actually when you read it back, you go, Ah, that's why I'm feeling that way. Yeah, there's a guy I work with who's right into the gratitude diary, and mm. I've been doing it in my own formal way. But um, I, th- you know, I can see the positive impact it's had on others, which is what you're talking about. Mm. But no matter what you're going through, find something to be grateful for, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think I think there's a lot in that. Mm. Um, and if you start your day thinking about that, it just, you know, it's like if you look up into the sky and put your, hold your hands up. It's hard to feel negative, isn't it? Right. So there are little things. There's lots and lots of little things you can do to get yourself out of that space that you might find yourself. Mm. So, Andrew, are there any other pearls of or wisdom or nuggets that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, look, I, I think the big thing about you know challenges like like I've shared with you this morning is no matter what you're going through, someone will have been there before you and reach out and have a conversation with that person because it'll help you process what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Don't think you're in this alone, right? So, and that's exactly, I guess, my own circumstances, which I've shared with you today. But that's in the context of business and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how difficult things might be. And if you think about what we've been going through, and I think a lot of what I'm talking about if you think about where we are in the world and in Australia right now after six months of COVID and the mental health aspects which are emerging in Australia do worry me greatly. Mm. And a lot of what I've been talking about is just as applicable to helping support people with where they are today. And so what you're experiencing is not unique to you. 
And if you go and share that and if you go and talk about it, you'll find that you'll not only support that other person, but it'll help you as well. And I think as a society, we need to adopt that motto so strongly if we're going to sort of emerge out of where we are today. Because I, as I said, I do really worry about the long end to mental mm. health impacts of what we've been through. Absolutely. Andrew, what would you say was the biggest lessons for you? Um, out of this experience, um, really, you know, like taking control of the situation and not, not forgetting your belief in yourself and confronting the brutal reality of what's in front of you and breaking it down into steps that you can then do something about. The other part of that for me is, you know, sharing that, you know, reaching out, sharing the experience and talking about it because, and as I'll repeat that quote that, that my nurse said to me, you've talked all the darkness out of you so it can't take you down. And my God, is that true? That is so true. Because uh, there's nothing left. The tank is empty. That it, it's all out. And as a result, you don't feel yourself just being pulled down into the, what, what you might be going through. Mm, I love that, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. If people want to connect with you or they want to know more, where can I direct them? Uh, look, please send us an email. Um, okay. I'm happy to talk to anyone about this. All right, I'll put the, e the email in the show notes today. Andrew, what an inspiration and true light you are in the world. You've really shown us that no matter what our circumstances, you really can rise and shine again. So thank you so much. No, thanks, Josie. It's been great to spend time with you. Now, if Andrew can do it, so can you. If you like this interview, share your comments below and tell us what you appreciated about it. Help spread the love by sharing the link with your friends so that they can learn to rise and shine from adversity too. So until next time, remember, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's how you respond that counts. Shine on. You can't shine.